0: Hi everybody, this is Michelle Thaller, and today I'm speaking to you actually from my home with my cat, Cassiopeia. And I've got some awkward news to share with you. My producer David Shulman is claiming that he's been abducted by aliens. Now, if you know me, you can guess that I don't think that's much of an excuse. However, it does make producing our podcast a bit of a challenge. So this week, I thought we'd take another listen to one of our favorite early episodes, it's episode number one, in fact, called Must Be Aliens. I'm Michelle Thaller and this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. I talked with Phil Plate, the bad astronomer. About the Kepler mission to find planets circling other stars, and why humans are so quick to ascribe the unknowns of the cosmos to aliens. (laughs) In the two years since we recorded it, my original producer Lauren Ober has ascended to the media stratosphere as host of NPR's The Big Listen. Meanwhile, the Kepler mission has continued to search for evidence of planets orbiting other stars. Now, this star, the one that we talked about in the first episode of Orbital Path, turned out to be so interesting that NASA decided to follow up and look at it with many different space telescopes. And not only that, we looked at it with many different kinds of light, infrared light, ultraviolet light. And now we think that we do have some clues that unfortunately lead to the conclusion that it is most likely not aliens. One thing is that when the light begins to dim around this star, it doesn't dim at the same rate in every part of the spectrum. It dims less in the infrared than it does in the ultraviolet. Now, that's almost the same thing that happens during a sunset when, as the Sun passes through air, the shorter wavelength light gets directed away and all we see is the longer wavelength light that looks sort of orange or red. That's why a sunset's red. Now, that means that whatever is dimming the light around this star is probably made of lots of tiny little particles, basically dust. So there may be some kind of large irregular dust cloud around this star, and that's causing the dimming. That really tells you that this can't be an alien megastructure. An alien megastructure would probably be made out of something solid, like metal or neutronium or whatever they would build something like that out of. It probably wouldn't be built out of dust. I want to tell you about one of my greatest frustrations as an astronomer, but something that I also think is kind of beautiful, and that is that almost every time I'm giving a public lecture, I will be talking about some fabulous new results, some picture of a moon of Saturn, or maybe we've got a great new observation of a distant galaxy, and then I'll open up to the audience, you know, does anybody have any questions? Would you like to know more about what I've just told you? And a hand will go up, and it's amazing how many times that question is I heard there was a UFO sighted over Mexico City last week, or or what about these mysterious lights off the coast of Los Angeles, and it occurs to me that this whole time I've been talking about the science that we're returning, people have been sort of desperately waiting for an opportunity to ask an astronomer, could there be evidence of life, of intelligent life outside the Earth? There's often a response that if we don't understand something, something that happened on the Earth, something that's happening up in space, it must be aliens. One of the things that happened recently is that the Kepler mission, which is incredible, it's a mission that NASA runs to find exoplanets, which are planets around other stars. And it has found thousands of them. In fact, there are many more thousands of candidates that may be planets once we follow up on them. There was a really interesting result about a star named... This this, okay, KIC 8462852, and there was something very unusual about it, something that's never been seen before with a Kepler object. When I first heard about this discovery, I immediately thought of my friend, Dr. Phil Plate. Phil is an astrophysicist, and he's also a science writer. He has a column for Slate called Bad Astronomy. And Phil is somebody who really deals head on with skepticism, the need for real data, but also people's need to believe in things outside the Earth.
1: First of all, thanks for for having me on. And everything you said about me, I can say about you. So yeah, here's this star. Unfortunately, there's no shorthand name for it. We'll just call it the star. It's not an unusual star by itself. It's 1500 light years away. So you know, relatively medium distance from the earth and sun. It's what's called an F star, which is a little bit bigger, a little bit brighter, a little bit hotter than the sun. We, We know of lots of stars like that. What's weird about it is that when Kepler stared at it, it saw lots of dips in the starlight. Now that's what Kepler is designed to do. It stares at 100,000, 150,000 stars, and it's looking for little dips in their starlight that could be caused by planets passing directly in front of the star. And that blocks a little bit of the light, and we can see that. And that's the telltale sign of of a planet. But planets, as they orbit their stars, block the star periodically, basically once every orbit. That's not what's going on here. We're not seeing that. We see dips all over the place. They don't seem to have any predictable pattern. Some of them are tiny dips. Some of them are super deep like blocking up to 22% of the star's light. That's a lot. A lot more than a planet should be able to do. And so right away, we knew that something weird was going on with it.
0: And there was something about those really, really deep dips where you know, like I said, a planet will block out just a small percentage of the light of a star. It's a tiny, tiny little you know, eclipse as a planet goes across the star, and we see that. There's no planet you could possibly think of that would block out more than 20% of the light of a star. It just wouldn't work that way.
1: That's the part that got me. It's like random dips are one thing. You can think of maybe there are lots of comets around the star, lots of asteroids, there's something going on. But even Jupiter would only block about 1% of this star's light. And a planet the size of the Earth would block, what, a a 10,000th of it, a hundredth of a percent. So something that blocks 20% of the star, that's huge. No planet is that big. And if it were a star, which is really the only thing solid, or, you know, opaque, that's that big, we'd see it. We'd know it was there. And there's nothing there to indicate there's another star there. So what the heck is going on? And that's the question here. The paper that was written, they talk about different things that could be causing this. They investigate the star. They investigate these dips in the light. And they come up with these ideas. And basically, the last thing on their list was uh, comets, that there are basically giant ice balls orbiting the star, smacking into each other. And when two of these things collide, you get this giant cloud of material around them. And that's what we see blocking the light. The problem is, eh, it doesn't quite fit the data exactly, you'd expect. So. Even comets don't exactly fit what this thing is. And that's why they kind of said, you know what? Why not? Let's look for aliens.
0: I think one of the things that surprised people about this whole conversation is that serious scientists could actually suggest, seriously, that maybe we were looking at some sort of vast alien superstructure. And when I was a postdoc at Caltech, I was working for the Spitzer mission, which is an infrared telescope. And there were serious astronomers that I knew. These are not kooks. These are not people that are, you know, on the fringe of scientific society. And they were proposing ways that we might actually recognize something called a, a Dyson sphere.
1: It's a very old theory, number one. I'm not surprised that you haven't heard of it. In the 20th century, a physicist called Freeman Dyson postulated the theory that an enormous hollow sphere could be constructed around a star. This would have the advantage of harnessing all the radiant energy of that star and any population living in On the interior surface would have virtually inexhaustible sources of power. Are you saying you think there are people living in there? Possibly a great number of people, Commander. The interior surface area of a sphere this size is the equivalent of more than 250 million class M planets. The idea here is that something is blocking the light of the star. What is it? And it turns out If you have something solid like a sphere, like a planet, a moon, an asteroid, something like that, when it passes in front of the star, you kind of expect the starlight to dim, drop down, and then rise back up. And we're not seeing that with this star either. It seems to dip down slowly and then rise more quickly. So maybe,
0: maybe,
1: if there are aliens living on a planet around the star and they're building one of these giant structures, you know, these pieces that they're building aren't necessarily symmetric. Maybe they're building triangles that they'll fit together or something else. And it turns out, if you have a giant triangle that passes in front of the star, it kind of replicates the dips we're seeing. Again, you know, not saying it's aliens, just saying, hey, that particular thing fits. I'm really waiting to hear what this turns
0: out to be. And I'm I'm fascinated. But like I said, I I think one of the things that surprised people about the conversation was that scientists think this way at all. But, you know, the idea that scientists are so cold and so rational and so skeptical that we can't even consider the possibility that either this structure might be alien or that there could be alien civilizations out there. To me, this is a part of my universe. It's a part of the view of my universe. Finding an alien structure around a star doesn't fill me with a huge amount of fear or cognitive dissonance. It would be incredibly, incredibly cool.
1: It it happened here and if it happened here it's bound to happen in other places unless the earth is so special that there's no other planet like it anywhere in the universe and that is extremely unlikely. Basically the universe is way more clever than we are. The, The more we study a group of objects like say exoplanets The weirder ones we find, and and ones that we would have never have thought could have existed. Just because it takes really bizarre circumstances to produce a planet that orbits its star the wrong way, or that has a planet bigger than Jupiter orbiting right over the surface of its star. Things that are completely different than what we see in our solar system. And also, astronomers have to see that data and understand it, and that takes a huge imagination. The temerity of saying, you know what? I'm going to look for planets around another star and that is so hard to do and it takes such a series of incredible leaps of imagination to be able to figure out how to do that. These are smart people with incredible imaginations and they are able to picture stuff in their heads that I can only dream of.
0: I have actually the last couple of days tried to imagine what it would be like if we eliminate all of the natural possibilities. You know, I fully expect that as we investigate this star further and we understand it better, it's not going to be that. But I was I was trying to figure out what it would feel like. I was trying to figure out, you know, here it is, 1,500 light years away. It's up in the summer sky. That's sort of the view that uh, the Kepler spacecraft has as it stares at a, a point not too far off the constellation Cygnus. And what would I do sitting out on a summer night looking through binoculars or a small telescope. this star you could see with a small telescope. It's definitely not naked eye visible. Even binoculars be hard, but a small amateur telescope, yes. How many hours would I spend just looking at that little point of light thinking there's something else there? There's somebody else there.
1: That's been the subject of how many short stories and novels and movies. I think Carl Sagan probably kind of nailed it in his book Contact
0: there would be richer messages further in. It doesn't matter what you look like or what you're made of or where you come from. As long as you live in this universe and have a modest talent for mathematics, sooner or later, you'll find it. It's already here. It's inside everything. You don't have to leave your planet to find it. In the fabric of space and in the nature of matter as in a great work of art, there is, written small, the artist's signature. I think sometimes in science you need to be uh, comfortable with disappointment. It may be very possible that we just never really understand what's going on. You know, maybe we don't get, you know, the the signal that says it's definitely comets. We never find anything that says that, that might be a civilization there. And for a while, at least, you know, we're just going to be kind of shrugging.
1: One of the cool things here is that the astronomers that, studied this, they thought of everything they could. They put it in a paper and they published it. And they said, yeah, we don't know. This might be comets. That's our best explanation, but it still doesn't fit exactly. I'd love it to be aliens, but if it's not, I still think that uh, the universe itself is pretty cool and whatever this star is doing is going to be worth our interest.
0: And one of the best things about being a scientist is that you don't don't get the answers right away. I mean, you know, the universe is not going to be conveniently telling you, oh yes, this is exactly what it is and, and making it into beautifully mentally digestible chunks and everything is very clear. It's all about unraveling these mysteries. And I mean, to me, that's actually one of the best things. I actually kind of like the fact that we never really get all the way to truth. We get better and better. We get closer and closer. But you can always understand something better than you used to.
1: That's right. It's very rarely an aha moment. That happens sometimes. You launch a a new telescope that looks at a different part of the electromagnetic spectrum that looks at you know infrared, ultraviolet, x-rays. And yeah, you can get that aha moment. But most of the time it's just a steady accumulation of weirdness. And then somebody says, you know, if you do this and this, then this fits. And that's fantastic. But that's basically how science progresses. It's little tiny steps, just lots and lots of them.
0: But that doesn't mean that sometimes you don't want that next big leap, that you get impatient for it. We are human beings. We're emotional beings. And this discovery, this Kepler result, has really put a mirror back on me and made me think about my emotional reactions to discovery and to mysteries. I would love there to be hard evidence, you know, real proof that there's a civilization out there, that we're not alone. I realized how much that's a longing in me, how much I want some huge mystery to reveal itself, that next big step to be taken. It's perhaps not the most scientific of responses, but that's because science isn't that simple. It's linked to our emotions. It's wrapped up in who we are as human beings. And to be honest, I kind of like that. Two, one. This mission to the stars has been commanded by Lauren Over. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler co-piloted from the PRX mothership. Whitney Jones navigated the soundscape, and Jim Briggs orchestrated the theme music. Special thanks to the studios of WAMU in Washington, D.C., Planet Earth. We are supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. And I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust, Signing off for now.
1: (laughs) What's her name again?
0: Our name is Cassiopeia, but we call her Cassie.